Standing down on Main Street across Mr. Blues My faded leather jacket, my weathered brogan shoes A chill north wind was blowing, but the spring was coming on Cause I wanted to myself just how long I had been gone So I strolled across old Main Street, walked down a flight of stairs Stepped into the hall, saw all my friends were there Hello, and welcome to Ask a Physical Therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Tannis Kitchener. I have a confession that I pre-recorded this interview with Caitlin. We got a little excited and it went a few minutes over. I had to edit the file. Also, we refer specifically to women in this discussion. There is no intent to be insensitive or exclusive with language. Endometriosis can happen to anyone who has a genetic capability of producing endometrial cells, regardless of gender identity. I encourage everyone to share their complete, current, and past medical histories with their medical providers so that you may get the most accurate diagnosis and necessary treatment as quickly as possible. I would also like to clarify a bit about the physiology of endometriosis. Endometriosis is when endometrial cells, which typically belong in the uterus, go rogue and set up shop in another part of the body. These cells continue to produce their own hormones, as well as blood supply and nerve supply. They continue doing what endometrial cells are meant to do, which is growing uh, blood vessel-rich glandular tissue layers, undergoing cycles of proliferation, differentiation, shedding, and regeneration. This process occurring anywhere besides the inside of the uterus is pathological and creates a painful inflammatory cascade. I hope that with today's show, you will learn a few things and hopefully get a little bit of enjoyment as well. Today, I have Caitlin Kinney, personal trainer, to discuss endometriosis. Endometriosis is a condition that affects 1 in 10 women where the cells that normally are inside the uterus, forming the endometrial lining, can actually form outside of the uterus, usually in the abdominal cavity. Sometimes it's found on the lungs, the diaphragm, and even in rare cases in the brain. This condition can be very painful and often can lead to decreased uh, ability to perform certain activities, lost time from work, etc. Thank you for joining us today, Caitlin, and being willing to share your experience. Thank you so much for having me. I, this is something I feel very strongly about. Women's health is very important to me, and I feel like we're often dismissed or not taken seriously, so I'm super happy to be here. Caitlin is both a friend of mine as well as a colleague, and I've had the pleasure of treating her as a physical therapist through a few different things, including during this journey and her persistence um, in getting the care that she needs it has been admirable, and she's learned a lot along the way. So I'm looking forward to her sharing her experience, and I'm grateful that she's willing to get into some of the personal nitty-gritty. Can you tell me a little bit about when you started to have symptoms of endometriosis and what those symptoms were? Yeah, I I can remember back about five years ago or so. That was when I was in college. I started having some pain in my lower right side. I didn't really think much about it. And then as I went on after college, I had a pretty stressful job situation. So there was a lot of stress I was under. And during this time, I started to have that right side pain. Once I moved back to Carbondale, I was working at my current job at Ripple, and I remember having excruciating pain on my right side and radiating down my legs, stabbing, shooting, all the things. I didn't have much of an appetite, and I was like, man, I have got to go to the ER. I think I have an appendicitis. Once I got there, they ran a bunch of tests and multiple scans, and the doctors came back to me and were basically like, everything is totally fine. We don't see anything, and here's some ibuprofen. So... 
I went home pretty confused and pretty defeated feeling. And then it kept happening. A few more instances happened where I would end up in the ER thinking I'm, I'm for sure this is appendicitis this time. And but every time, same thing. So it got to be really discouraging. My symptoms really only got worse and progressed as time went on. I started experiencing back pain, heavy periods, sciatica nerve pain, GI issues, bloating and inflammation, inability to engage certain muscles, um, major anxiety, depression. This overall sense that my womanhood was defective was the main thing that really got me down. It felt like I had a constant UTI, but every time I'd go to the doctor, I didn't have any signs of UTI. So it was really pretty uncomfortable that it started to affect my day-to-day activities and my personal life as well. Any sort of alcohol, sugar, really anything inflammatory greatly affected me the next few days. So I started to to, to, to create quite a bit of like anxiety around social situations. So I want to touch a little bit on some of the things that you just said for the listeners. This disease is picked up and experienced in women, most commonly ages 25 to 29. Mm-hmm. So fits with what you were experiencing. The average time to diagnosis from the beginning of symptoms to diagnosis is eight years. Yep. And most women who go through this really do feel that they've been gaslighted by their providers and feel like you've got appendicitis and to get sent home with Advil is a really nasty experience and unfortunately very common in this in this condition. Super common. And I get a lot of I've even talked to women that I know that have had endometriosis or think they have it and they have the same experiences and just kind of ignored by doctors telling them it's in their head. I was told it was in my head by a lot of practitioners, and you honestly start to believe that it's in your head, unfortunately. I was just listening to um, a researcher who specializes in endometriosis, and she read the diagnosis from the medical literature from, I think, 1990 or 1991 when she was in her graduate program. And the diagnosis for endometriosis literally read that it's a white woman with decent financial means in her 30s with no children with an anxious personality. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we have a long way to go, but we've come away since then. Um, I think the other thing that's challenging for medical providers that are addressing this is that there are similar comorbidities that often present that we have to kind of work through these layers and say, okay, well, we've successfully treated these comorbidities like irritable bowel syndrome, mm-hmm. interstitial cystitis, pudendal neuralgia, um, and they can present similarly. So when you treat those and then your symptoms still don't go away, that's when people start to know. And that's why the diagnosis can take a while. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they did tons of blood work on me. They ruled out everything that they could think of, PCOS. I mean, there's really, it's PCOS is very similar in that there's no true way to diagnose it, I believe, without... And PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome. syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, the diagnosis for endometriosis, I think PCOS, you can diagnose more commonly through ultrasound potentially. Yep. Um, But endometriosis for the listeners is diagnosed via laparoscopic um, assessment. So that means a surgery to even clarify and make sure that you have it. You cannot rule it in or rule it out with MRI, with ultrasound, with Mm -hmm. CT scan. And so that's also part of why the diagnosis takes so long, because you don't want to go through an unnecessary surgery, Mm -hmm. like as an exploration to see if you even have something. For sure. And there were many times in those hospital visits that I kept demanding ultrasounds and expecting them to find a major 
issue on my ovaries and each time they were like you know your ovaries look completely fine but I had this intense ovarian pain every time so yeah unfortunately with endometriosis the only tools we have for proper diagnosis right now are going in and seeing it which is unfortunate. Once you got diagnosed once you had a doc on board that said hey this is suspicious for endometriosis what types of treatments did you start with to manage your symptoms? It was actually a local physician that pointed out that I could maybe have had endometriosis and I sadly didn't even know what the disease was because it's there's so little information out there. So then I went to a few gynos in the valley and they prescribed me a bunch of birth control. The goal with the birth control pills is to try to suppress your estrogen and your hormone levels so that the inflammation hopefully decreases. But in my experience, that made everything way worse because it was like adding hormones on top of my already whacked out hormonal body. So that really didn't work. I tried every type of birth control pill and option out there that you can think of and made my anxiety worse, depression worse, inflammation worse. So then I finally got a diagnosis through a woman in Denver um, who was a bladder specialist. I went to see her for my bladder issues and I was a really rare case in that she was able to actually put a camera up my bladder and saw some endo lesions inside of my bladder, which is pretty rare, like very rare. So after that, she prescribed me Oralissa, which is a mini, it's a pill that puts you into a mini menopause in order to stop estrogen production. And and it was really not good for me. It caused joint pain, mood swings, hot flashes, weight gain. I basically was going through menopause with little pain difference. In your 20s? In my 20s, yeah. yeah. I was having, like, my elbows, my knees ached all the time. I'm very active and I couldn't really do much without being in not only pelvic pain, but now joint pain. It's common for providers to prescribe hormonal-based treatments as a, as a first line of defense, um, but the research is showing that that doesn't necessarily get rid of or treat the lesions. It mostly treats the symptoms. Um, just for the listeners out there, for some people, that's, that's good enough because they're in a position where they don't want to do surgery or they can't mm-hmm. do surgery yet. Or maybe the doc wants to see, okay, if we treat with these hormones and things do get better, then maybe it's a way of continuing to rule in endometriosis, which might point towards in the future we need to do a laparoscopy. Um, But I'm, so you continued beyond the hormonal treatments. And and what else were you doing at that time besides medications? Yeah. And it's also a side note, it's important to, to note that everyone is so different. I mean, I know some people that have had endometriosis and are completely fine on one little birth control pill, whereas my body was so hypersensitive that, that anything affected it pretty negatively. So it's important to know that some women do do well on that stuff. But aside from the pharmaceuticals, I was on, I was doing acupuncture consistently, pelvic floor therapy, which really helped my bladder immensely and the bladder spasms I was having. I found out I was allergic to gluten, so I did some some nutrition things, and so cutting out gluten, cutting out as much sugar as I could, limiting alcohol as much as I could, trying my best and not trying to not be too hard on myself, to, and trying to also balance living life was hard, but those were the main things, and acupuncture and pelvic floor therapy, I would say, were the things that got me through to the surgery, and definitely beyond, but we'll get into that later. What helped you decide that it was time to do surgery, and how did you go about picking a surgeon? Yeah, I I guess I just was so depleted and frustrated and in such a hyperactive pain cycle that I I was like, I've got to do something. And, And also, there was this little voice in my head that 
from all of the years I was gaslit by the medical industry that maybe it's not there. So I kind of needed to explore that question of like, is it really there? I needed to know that answer. Mm-hmm. So that's really what what motivated me to move forward with surgery. And, and I had tried literally everything possible. And when none of that worked, I was like, okay, surgery is my last step. And I had a lot of fear and a lot of women that I talked to and a lot of women on the support group that I'll talk about, they all have the same fear going into the surgery of what if it's not there when I wake up. And I think that's just goes to show how much women are listened to mm-hmm. with this kind of disease. I mean, um, the surgeon I ended up seeing said that that is his most common question that every single woman asks him is, I'm afraid I'm going to wake up and it's not there. But back to the question, I actually joined a Facebook group. I just started doing my research. I um, They have great Facebook groups online, and one pointed me to this site called Nancy's Nut. And she also has a website, and she has devoted her whole entire life to helping women with endometriosis because she, at a young age, they just started taking everything out of her before they knew really what this disease was. So she just has a whole website on information and scientific articles. And in addition to that, she has a list of surgeons that are she calls NUC approved in each state. So those are the surgeons that meet the qualifications needed to be a specialist for endo. Mm. So I found one in Colorado who Dr. Brian Nelson is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I was so grateful that you were able to find such a good surgeon Mm -hmm. um, that not only is good at diagnosing, but good at excising all the different little lesions. Mm -hmm. Um, You and I know of at least one case where um, somebody was experiencing classic symptoms, and this can be very debilitating, and it's debilitating especially around your menstrual cycle. So every single month there can Mm -hmm. be a really awful debilitating pain that can limit your ability to work. and so on and so forth. One stat that I found is that 21 to 66 percent of women may have a false negative laparoscopy. That means a woman goes in for exploratory surgery to diagnose or rule out endometriosis, and the doc says, "Oh, couldn't find anything. You don't have endometriosis." And it turns out that they did. Mm-hmm. So finding that skilled surgeon is super important. And I have found a fairly new website that's dedicated to like a third third-party double-blinded assessment of surgeons who are doing these excision surgeries. That's amazing. I didn't so know that. they're making the surgeons submit up to three, at least three videos of them doing a surgery, and they're having somebody else who specializes in it, who's highly specialized in it, watch the video and make sure that the surgeon's actually getting all of the right spots and doing a good job. So that is called iCareBetter.com. And it turns out that you can actually, and I just learned this today, so I'm going to be looking into it for myself, but you can also find PTs that have specific experience listed on that website as well. So for any of our listeners who are out of the area and need some resources, that's also another resource. That's amazing. I didn't actually know that. Um, That's really encouraging. Yeah, it's, it's and this was the first doctor surgeon who really sat down with me and listened and said to me, it's not in your head specifically, which was really nice to hear him say, and the symptoms are real and I'm going to get you help. Finding a surgeon, a good surgeon is I think the most important step with endometriosis and really doing your research and like reaching out to this Facebook, there's a great Facebook group that's just endometriosis support. And you can write in on on that and ask if they've seen if anyone has seen a certain surgeon and tons of women will reply with their experiences. I think the number one thing with endo is just a support group because we just 
Mm. It's such a under-researched thing, and there just isn't much information out there. And I think I think just having support is really like the first step in being an advocate for your health. And hopefully, this show will help because one in ten women—that means if you know ten women. At least one person in your life is likely suffering from endometriosis. Mm -hmm. There's also a concept of um, what has been coined period privilege, meaning a woman who has had periods that are just not that painful, which is normal, like Mm -hmm. it's not normal for your period to be super painful, doesn't understand that a woman suffering in this way Mm -hmm. truly is suffering. You know, there's this air out there of, oh, well, she's just not very tough or she's dramatic. That's not what it is at all. You've got scarring lesions that are pulling on your internal organs. It's, I mean, think about how bad a little paper cut feels on your finger when it bleeds or what a blister can feel like. So it's that inflammatory bleeding process. So if you're listening to this and somebody in your life has endometriosis and they're struggling to get support, maybe this will give you a little better understanding and maybe some support uh, venues for you to point them to. And if you have endometriosis, this will give you some ideas on where to find your own support and treatment. For sure, yeah. And I mean, I was asked many times, oh, is it just bad cramps? And I remember thinking, oh, man, I wish it was just that. Like, I would have maybe one or two days after my period where I would have a little bit of relief. And then it was like clockwork. My pain would just start ramping up for the whole rest of the month. And ovulation was always the worst, actually, more than my period, because of the estrogen that your body is giving off during ovulation. If you think about it, those lesions are inflaming because they're giving off their own estrogen as well. That's really incredible about this diagnosis is these. So there's a couple different theories on what causes endometriosis. And one of them is that and when we're developing as a fetus, that the endometrial lining cells, as they're traveling from the neural tube where they start to form the endometrial lining, they end up kind of leaving that train and getting deposited in other areas of the abdomen. Mm -hmm. And then as we mature and we hit puberty, those little tiny cells still know what they're supposed to be doing. They're just not in the right place to be doing it. And Mm -hmm. so during your cycle, they produce their own estrogen, their own progesterone. They set up their own nerve supply. They set up their own blood vessel supply and they do their own thing, but they're doing it outside of where they're supposed to be doing it, which wreaks havoc in the abdomen. The other thing that I think that you experienced and understand is that it can affect your, when it affects your ability to go to work, now all of a sudden your employer needs to be understanding and mm-hmm. needs to figure out how to how to assist you and find coverage. Your clients need to be understanding. Um, the more that we can educate folks on this and the more people have experience hearing about it and talking about it, I think it'll bring some light to the situation. Definitely. So let's go back to what your recovery was like after surgery, mm-hmm. after the laparoscopy, and what types of therapies you did post-op. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an- another thing is my recovery was longer than I thought, and I I wasn't necessarily prepared to, for that, I would say, by the surgeon, that was the only downfall. I just wasn't really given a lot of instruction as to what I couldn't couldn't do. They kind of told me I was good to go at eight weeks. So I felt that in my version of good to go is <laughs> probably way too much. So I had skied powder on week eight, and that probably slowed down my recovery process quite a bit. So anyone out there that's going to get this surgery, really listen to your body and s- take it slow for a while. And I think... That was my one downfall is that I just didn't really listen well enough. But besides that, the first week was the hardest for sure in terms of 
pain and like you're on all these pain meds and you're a little, I had never had a surgery, so that was an adjustment for me. Um, you can't use your core, so you really need people helping you get up and down and, and eating and walking around. But then as, after that first week, it starts to get easier and you start to walk around and be able to move a little bit better. And then it pretty much went up from there. I took about three weeks off of work because my, my jobs are pretty physical. I'm on my feet all day. And then I got into pelvic floor PT, honestly, like as soon as I could. And that really helped just kind of break up some of that scar tissue and rewire my body and immediately into, into believing that it was okay after the lesions were gone because that was a... That's been the hardest part, I think, in my recovery is that my body still thinks it's in pain a lot of the time. And it's and it's been about, I mean, it's been over, it's been like nine months now and I'm doing extremely well, but it took about six months for my body to feel like its nervous system was coming down and it mm. could, ch- and I could trust my body again, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So it only takes three to six months of being in pain for our nervous system to centralize that pain to become um, hypersensitive to pain, meaning every it's on fight or flight. You know, everything's ramped up because it feels like, okay, she's not something's wrong. She's not paying attention mm-hmm. to this. It's not getting taken care of. We're going to be much more clear about this issue. And so when the average time to diagnosis is eight years, most mm-hmm. women who have endometriosis have become centrally uh, sensitized. And it can take I mean, you're doing fantastic with the amount of time that you've had to already feel like yeah, you've been you. decentralized is um, is really, really good. You you put a lot of work in. For anybody who doesn't know yeah. Caitlin, one, she's a super hard worker. Oh. Two, she's a great athlete. And so these issues were really affecting her quality of life. I mean, the fact that she felt like she couldn't show up in her job like she yeah. usually does. Sorry, I'm speaking for you, but oh, I'm not no, sure you I would say this for say yourself. This. <laughs> <laughs> um, she wasn't showing up to work in the way that she's used to, and that I could tell was affecting her mentally. And she wasn't able to do her barrel racing, her backcountry skiing, her mm-hmm. mountain biking, her running. And, you know, all of those make up such a big part of who she is, as it does for most of us. And um, that was hard to see as a friend. And I'm so glad oh, to see you. that you found all those treatments and support. And I've loved being on your team because it does take a team to work with a lot of these things. It does. And I'm really lucky in that I work in the health industry. So I have a knowledge of all this. So I this is another reason this is important for me to make this or be a resource for women because I know that a lot of people don't have the same resources that I have or we have in this valley. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important to talk about it and create support groups and just like get it more known. Speaking of support, I know that you mentioned Nancy's Nook on mm-hmm. Facebook. The endometrius support groups on Facebook, there's a variety. You've got a list here of some podcasts and blogs. Mm-hmm. Um, if you'll just list those off quickly, and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listened to this Endo Life. That was a really good one. And I kind of had to take it with a grain of salt because at the time I'd get a little scared just because of what, or like overwhelmed. But it's really useful and informative. Um, then the Bloom, the Bloom in Uterus is a blog that I used to read, and that's really great. It has a lot of encouraging things and positive stories and stuff. Woman Code, the book by Alyssa Vitti, she, that really helped me get my hormones back in the sink after the surgery because your mm. hormones get pretty whacked out through endo. So that like helps from a nutritional standpoint and rest. Stand, it just teaches you what your body is really like. And as women, we never were taught any of that. Beyond the Pill is a great one by Jolene Brighton. That's just kind of a 
teaches you about the pill and coming off of it and how to do it properly. Um, once again, hormone imbalance. And then finding a local pelvic floor therapist is huge. That's like what's really helped me the most in acupuncture. Mm. Those two together have been my saving grace. Yeah. And I do them, I just do them consistently as maintenance and I probably always like will. Yeah. And then I want our listeners to know that you and Sarah Coburn, who's a friend from the Roaring Fork Valley, uh, who unfortunately has just moved on to another location, but you guys have been, what would you say, invited to be part of the Endo Strong team? Yeah, or? we. My my friend, she is also an Endo gal, and we wanted to give back after we had our surgeries, so we. Um, we uh, registered for this team to become a part of it, and we made the team. So we are running for the Endometriosis Fund of America in New York City for the marathon, and we have raised over three grand each, and that will go towards research for endometriosis. So together we've raised probably over six grand. And when is the New York City Marathon? It's November 6th. November 6th. Yeah. Um, so I know that you have done your part in raising your entry fees that go to the research, um, but I would love to give our listeners an opportunity to contribute to your travel and lodging expense so that you and Sarah aren't paying fully out of pocket for that. If anybody is inclined to do so, you've set up a GoFundMe page and it's uh, www.gofundme.com slash F slash new dash York dash city dash endo dash marathon dash travel dash expenses. And you've said that anything that goes above and beyond what you need for flight and lodging will go towards the uh, research foundation so that we can continue to make progress with this um, treating this disease and identifying it. If you're dealing with endometriosis, it's great to get a team, including a great gynecologist, surgeon, if you end up needing to go that route, acupuncturist, pelvic floor physical therapist, if you can find one who also does visceral manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been part of my practice, which has helped our case, I think, your case oh, absolutely. hugely. Huge. And then personal trainers that have an understanding of what you're going through. Yeah. And I'm happy to answer any, or be here for support for anyone. If you're looking for a personal trainer who has experience with endometriosis, both personally and professionally, look into Caitlin at Ripple Effect here in Carbondale, Colorado. Caitlin, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today, and I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and your uh, experience with the listeners and your willingness to be a support for those with endometriosis in our community. Thanks again. Thank you. Remember that if you ever want to re-listen to any of these episodes or share them with family or friends, you can jump onto kdnk.org and search for Ask a Physical Therapist, and all of the past shows as well as today's show will be archived. Take care and stay well. Stepped to the hall, saw all my friends were there. A neon sign was playing.